you want to get out your sermon outline that says feeding the kingdom. Remember last week we looked at the death of John the Baptist. He was beheaded. His head was served on Cece's platter. And that big platter we had. But now we have an abrupt change in the story. So we're going to talk about why this change. Why from such a hard thing to what seems to be such a good thing, a positive thing. So keep that in mind as we read this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 13 through 21. Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. Please listen carefully. This is God's word. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. And again, you have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son Jesus. We come to this story this morning, and we think we know it so well. It's a good story. It's another miracle. And we already know it, or so we think. Lord, make this story spiritual food to us. Nourish us by it. Encourage us by it. Build our faith with it. And so by your Spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. And as always, for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this week, as I was teaching at RTS on Friday... I asked my students to turn to today's passage and find the main point. It's an exercise we do every week. And they read the passage, but they couldn't decide if the main point was the provision of Jesus or the compassion of Jesus. And after letting them flounder for a few minutes, I told them that both those points, provision and compassion, were in fact key points but then neither of them were the main point. And like every dog I've ever owned, they just sort of tilted their head to the side and stared at me. It's kind of like a collective, 
uh-oh, the professor must have had a bad week again because he's not making much sense now. I get that a lot. So then I asked him to go back and read the passage right before this one, the passage about the death of John the Baptist, the passage I preached on last week, at the end of which we read Matthew 14, starting at verse 10. He, King Herod, sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, if you remember from countless Advent and Christmas sermons, John the Baptist was the son of Elizabeth, the cousin of Jesus' mother Mary. And John and Jesus then were related. They're relatively close together in age. And so I believe the news of John's death, this horrible news of this godly man getting beheaded <coughs> and having his head served on a platter had to hurt Jesus deeply. This is family. It was a sucker punch. It's one of those coming out of nowhere blows that just knocks the wind out of you. And so at the beginning of today's passage, we read how Jesus responded, verse 13. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So John the Baptist is dead. Jesus is stunned, and he wants to get away, and the crowds of people won't leave him alone. Who's missing from the story? The disciples. And I want you to take a moment and put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Things have been going pretty well. We left the fishing jobs and followed Jesus some time ago, and it's been pretty good. He gave this amazing sermon on this hillside outside of Capernaum that people are still talking about. Powerful stuff. Powerful, and we were definitely with him. And then he performed a series of miracles. He healed lepers, a paralytic, a centurion servant, two blind men, and a bleeding woman. And he cast out demons and brought life to the dead and dying. And he even quieted the wind and the waves. It was amazing. And he had us convinced. We were his disciples forever. And then we heard a whole bunch of parables. Okay, a little hard to understand, but Jesus explained some of them, so that was pretty good too, and we're still here. But you know, people can be fickle. They're with you one moment and gone the next, and we're not sure what happened, but Jesus started talking about rejection. And more and more we started seeing the scribes and the Pharisees opposing Jesus and speaking against him. It looked like things might be getting more difficult. We're hanging in there, but there's some uncertainty among us now. But then we got the news about John the Baptist. King Herod got drunk at his own birthday party, and the manipulative evil witch Herodias got her daughter to dance for him, and the moron king promised her anything. Anything. Can you believe it? And the wicked witch's daughter asked for John's head on a platter, and she gets it. 
And all of a sudden, this following Jesus thing got really serious. I'm not sure this is what we had in mind when we signed up. They served his head on a platter. I like my head right where it is. Thank you very much. And being a disciple isn't that much fun anymore. And I'm not sure I can still do this. I'm not sure Jesus can still do this. Maybe it's time to go home. I'm just not sure. The whole situation is uncertain. I got a lot of doubt at the moment. It's hard to believe at times like this. And that's the main point of the passage. It's hard to believe at times like this. And Jesus knows that. And so he's going to take some dramatic steps to shore up the disciples' faith, rebuild the disciples' faith, strengthen the disciples' faith, at the same time reaffirming two of their fears. He's letting them know we're dealing with faith now. It's not about having fun. It never was. And yes, following Jesus is serious business. So let's turn to our text for today, Matthew 14, 13 to 21, commonly known as the feeding of the 5,000. And earlier I said that provision and compassion are key points, if not the main point. So that's where we'll start, verse 13. We see that people need compassion. People need compassion. It says there, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there. When it says he heard this, he heard about the death of John the Baptist. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So here we see this beautiful picture of the compassion of Christ. Jesus knew that he needed rest and some time away by himself. He wanted time to pray. He wanted time to be with his heavenly Father. So he withdrew from public ministry got into a boat with the disciples, went to the other side of the lake seeking solitude. But when he gets there, the crowds had already anticipated his movement and had made their way to the seashore so that when he stepped out of the boat, they're already there, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them waiting for him to minister. And Christ is tired. He's in need of rest. There was never a better time in Jesus' ministry when he could have easily said, look, I'm tired, go home, I need a break, I need some rest. I've been ministering in Galilee, my disciples are feeling the pressure now that John's been killed, they know Herod could do the same thing to them. My cousin, my forerunner, John the Baptist, has just died. I need time to think about that and pray about that. Give me some space. Jesus knew that the martyrdom of John the Baptist is yet another, yet another reminder from God that his own hour, his hour, is coming, and it's coming soon. Who knows what thoughts went through Jesus' mind because of the loss of John. And Jesus knew his disciples needed relief too. You can imagine what it must have been like ministering the word of God, knowing that any moment, Herod's men could arrive and do to you exactly what they did to John throw you in prison, allow you to suffer there for months, and then eventually be executed, not on a judicial charge, but on the whim of this w wicked uh, woman, uh, queen, nut job, crazy lady. You don't want somebody like that deciding your life. 
You can imagine the pressure on the disciples and that kind of charged atmosphere. And Jesus knew he needed to get them away uh, for a time so they can commune with God and recharge their spiritual batteries and retreat from the work so they may be able to go out and minister again. And so if there's ever a time when Jesus had a right not to minister to others, it's this time. But when Jesus steps ashore and sees the crowd, his reaction is immediate and instinctive. He does three things when he sees the multitudes. First, Matthew tells us he feels compassion. This is not simply uh, just a feeling. It's not just an emotional response because it results in two other things. Not only does he feel compassion for them, Matthew tells us he began to heal their sick. So he's getting off the boat, he feels compassion, and immediately starts healing people. And though Matthew doesn't tell us, Mark, Luke, and John do, that he not only had compassion on them and healed them, but he taught them. So Jesus' response in this time of his own need, his response to the needs of others, is to have compassion on them. Heal their sick, teach them, care for them. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of this picture. It clearly impacts the disciples. This is the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. There are many miracles in the Gospels. Many of them are recorded in three of the Gospels, but this miracle is found not only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also in John. The disciples clearly thought that this miracle is of great importance. And Jesus' response to the crowds following him serves to impress upon the disciples the mandate for their own self-sacrificial ministry. Jesus has called his disciples to be shepherds of the flock. And in this passage, he's given them an example of how you shepherd the flock. The shepherd denies himself for the sake of the flock. That's the example he's setting for them. Being very practical, the disciples want to send the people home. But Christ, because he knew he was the people's shepherd, wants to care for them. And he wants his disciples to have that same kind of attitude in ministering to others. The great commentator William Hendrickson says, The needs of people sick and ignorant and disconsolate and hungry meant far more to Jesus than his own convenience and ease. And so he heals the sick in spite of his own needs. We shouldn't let it, uh, it escape us that by doing this under these circumstances, Jesus is not only setting an example for his disciples, but for the entire church throughout all ages. Jesus is modeling self-denial for the sake of ministry and compassion on people who, as we're going to discover, are actually pretty hard-hearted. If you read John 6, the parallel account in the Gospel of John, it's a much longer account of this miracle, it's clear that people are attracted by Jesus' ability to heal. That's why they're following him. Surprise. But they're not at all interested in his claims to be the Messiah. And they're even less interested in the fact that he's setting up not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. In fact, John tells us that after this miracle, when he preaches to the crowd, they're offended, and they complain and grumble. And Jesus speaks plainly to them in John 6, verses 26 and 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then we read later on in that chapter. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And they're offended. And they grumble. And it says some turned back and stopped following him. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew this crowd was not necessarily following him for spiritual uh, reasons or with the right spiritual motives. And yet his heart goes out to them. He shows them compassion despite the state of their hearts. And in so doing, gives the disciple, gives us an example of compassion. However, as I said earlier, compassion, while a key point, is not the main point. It's also true for the next point here, where we see that people need provision. Starting in verse 15, people need provision. It says, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. I was reading an article this week that said, Washington, D.C. is a place where people come who want power or who have power. The dictionary will tell you power is the ability to act. No one moves to Washington, D.C., or for that matter, Northern Virginia, to reflect. Actually, as far as I can tell, I rarely meet anyone who even moves here to live. Most people come here to do. Therefore, most people who move here either have or want power. And yet in this passage, we're talking about a power that makes the combined power of Washington, D.C. look like shooting a rubber band. Because here we're talking about the power of God. And yet, this amazing, awesome power is going to be channeled through a child. We see that, in the, again, the parallel passage in John 6. It tells us, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So there's a little boy here, a poor boy, who's chosen as the channel of God's power. We know this little boy is poor because he has barley loaves. In those days, uh, barley is the bread of the poor. In fact, it's been that way for centuries. There's even a place where the famous English writer Samuel Johnson said, Barley is a grain which in England is fed to horses and in Scotland is fed to people. That's the message of what barley is. Kind of lost that sense today. We don't think of it that way, but barley has always been the bread of the poor. So who's this little kid? He's just a little kid. He's a little boy, a child. He's from a poor family. His belongings are virtually nothing. From a human perspective, he's insignificant in every way. And so is his food. Clearly, this little bit of food is only enough for one person. The five barley loaves 
are small hard cakes, something roughly equivalent to biscuits. And the two fish are most likely preserved fish, not unlike pickled sardines that you would put on the barley loaves. We're not talking about largemouth bass here. And so you see, there's really only enough food for one person. And it's implied uh, in the text that the disciples are essentially saying, not only do we not have enough food for all these people, but we really only have enough food for you. Jesus, you take it. You need your strength. The rest of us will get by. In fact, in Mark's retelling of this event, the disciples specifically tell Jesus to send the people away. We can't help them. But this little boy offers his simple meal to Jesus anyway, and Jesus used what little he had and did great things uh, with it. Like the widow who put her might in the temple offering, this small boy gives all he's had. And the message is that the insignificant and the insufficient become significant and sufficient. In the hands of Jesus, the little loaves suddenly become superabundant plenty, bread for everyone. The loaves and fish become a feast, and the entire city, this huge crowd, is fed. Now John tells us that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. You know, and he could have just snapped his fingers. Instead, he makes all the disciples nervous and upset. He gets them scrambling around trying to find something. And he ends up getting this little boy, and he takes this little boy's lunch like right out of his mouth. Why does Jesus do that? He could have just snapped his fingers. We have to remember, he's a teacher, and he's trying to get us to learn something and to understand However, again, as I said earlier, provision, while a key point, is not the main point. But that's not true for the next point, where we finally get to the crux of the matter, which is that the disciples need faith. The disciples need faith, starting at verse 20. It says, And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So now we see that Jesus takes charge of the situation. He gives thanks for the food, and he has it distributed, and he shows the disciples they need to put their faith in him, not in what they can see and what they can figure out on their own. Notice in verse 20, the people were given as much food as they wanted. They all had enough to eat. Jesus gives to all, not just the disciples. And he gives in abundance not in small measured portions. He wants the disciples to realize that he's able to supply all human needs, no matter how great the need, no matter how impossible the situation. And so the disciples are persuaded. But notice how they're persuaded. I love this part. Jesus sends them out to gather up the leftovers. Remember, who said this was impossible? The disciples. How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. How many baskets of leftovers are collected? Twelve. Who's holding these baskets of leftover food? The disciples. I think each disciple is holding a basket of leftover food. Each disciple is holding in his hands the evidence that Christ indeed is the person in whom they're to put their faith. 
Be very careful before you say impossible to the sovereign God of the universe. You may be left holding a basket that says otherwise. Just imagine the scene. The twelve disciples are standing in a circle around Jesus, each holding this basket of food, standing there looking at the Lord with far more food than they started with. And Jesus looking back at them with eyes that are saying, now do you believe? Now do you know where to put your faith? Now are you prepared to stop trusting in yourselves and start trusting in me? Now are you going to stop trying human solutions and start trying divine solutions? Now in the face of rejection, in the face of death, in the face of the impossible, now will you look to me? There's a lesson in the leftovers. God gives an abundance. He takes whatever we offer him, whatever we have, whatever the situation, however impossible, and it may be in terms of our time or talents or tithes or whatever, and he multiplies its effectiveness beyond our wildest imagination. Beyond any of our expectations, far more abundantly than all we think or ask. God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. It's the lesson of the leftovers. It's a lesson the disciples would remember for the rest of their lives. He's teaching them in order to minister the way he wants them to minister, they can't do it in their own power. Look at what he tells them to do, verse 16. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Well, they immediately recognize they can't feed everyone. It's obvious to them. We got... Five loaves and two fish. There's more than 5,000 people out there, Lord. How in the world are we going to do that? See, the disciples need to learn their own inability to carry out Christ's command to minister before they're able actually to minister. Did you hear? Did you get that? Did you hear that? They need to know they don't have the ability to minister before they're able to minister. Because that ability, that power, that source, that strength is found only in Christ. And so the very command of Christ to the disciples, you give them something to eat, should drive them to their knees. It should drive them to their faces in dependence on Christ because they don't have any clue how they're going to do this. And frankly, they don't have any clue how Jesus is going to do this, despite the however many miracles they've already seen and performed. So by telling the disciples to give the crowd something to eat, Jesus is not only stressing the responsibility for provision and compassion, but he's reminding them of the true source of their ability to minister that provision, to minister that compassion. They'll never be able to carry out the commands of Christ uh, that he's given them. They can't do it in their own strength. Only Christ can do what he's told them to do. Matthew Henry puts it this way, Ministers can never fill people's hearts unless Christ fills their hands. That's how it goes. When you're at the point where you feel outmatched, when you think, Lord, there's no way I can help this person, there's no way I can help these people, then you're right where God wants you. Why? Because all real Christian ministry is beyond our own resources. It should all be prayerfully dependent on Christ and totally dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work through us because we can't heal up wounded hearts as much as we might want to. Only Jesus can do that. And so when Christ calls us 
to minister to others. He's not saying, I want you to figure out how to get it done. He's saying, I want you to rely on me. So much that when you go out, you know you're overmatched. But I'm not. Finally, notice when it tells you how many people are in the crowd. It says, verse 21, and those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. It's only taking a census of the men. There's others there. There's families there. There's women and children there. Counted 5,000 men, which means the crowd itself could have been two or three times larger. And it means the miracle was seen by the crowd. That's important. I think one of the reasons it's mentioned in all four Gospels is because it's now telling us there is an external witness to the work of Christ. The scholars would say it's an external witness to the validity of this event as actual, real, it happened history. They'll tell us that the Gospels were documents being circulated around Palestine some 30 to 40 years after this happened. And you know, if a miracle wasn't done in front of 15,000 people in this town, and 30 years later a document circulated saying there was a miracle done, and it, and it was seen by 15,000 people, and everybody says, I don't know anything about it. I was here. You're not going to forget. I mean, 15,000 people is a lot of people, particularly back then. If it hadn't happened, there's no way this document would have gotten off the ground. In fact, there's no way the Christian religion would have gotten off the ground. But it did get off the ground, and this miracle is one reason why. One day, Jesus' disciples stand with the Savior at the Sea of Galilee. And they look out upon another sea, this great sea of faces, who had come to hear Jesus speak about repentance and forgiveness and the love of God. And the Bible says there's thousands of men, which means there's probably thousands of women and thousands of children. As we said, a good guess at the crowd size might be somewhere around 15,000 people. That's a lot of bodies. That's a lot of bodies who spent the entire day listening to the Savior tell them that God's promises are all true and that through Him, through Christ, the Lord is rebuilding the bridge between earth and heaven, rebuilding the bridge which sin has destroyed so long ago. And it has been a long day. Which is why, as the afternoon's winding up, the disciples come to Jesus and remind him, these people are far from home and they're getting hungry. And to their credit, they're concerned about you know, the physical well-being of all these people. And it's that concern which has them approach Jesus and offer a very practical a solution to this problem. Lord, it's getting late. Send these folks to this nearby town so they can get a bite to eat you know, before they have to go home. It's a pretty reasonable request. But the Savior's reply must have just shocked, startled his close friends. Because instead of agreeing, he turns to him and says, not a bad idea, boys. I'll tell you what, I got a better one. Why don't you feed them yourselves? I would have loved to have been the proverbial fly on the wall and just seen the faces of the disciples. You know, they hear this, you feed them. And they look out at the crowd, 15,000 people. And they look back at Jesus, you know, is he really being serious or not? 
You know, maybe he's just joking around. The Lord knows how this day is going to turn out. And he's totally serious. He was serious in teaching them that wishing upon a star doesn't always get the job done. And he's serious in teaching them that when man is helpless, God is not. So what do the disciples do? Well, first of all, they do what you would do. They do what I would do. They did the very human thing. They check their wallets. They check their purses. They look in their robes. I don't know where they hid money back then, but wherever it is, they looked there, and there wasn't any money. They can't feed the crowd. They can't even provide appetizers. So with plan A now crashing and burning, they switch to plan B. They scour the crowd to see if anybody has anything to eat. Understand, they're looking for enough food to feed thousands. It would have taken a convoy of 18 wheelers full of Happy Meals to feed that many hungry people. But they don't find a convoy. They find a little boy who has a few small loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And the Bible doesn't say if the disciples felt foolish bringing the boy to Jesus. I kind of think they probably did. They certainly had to conclude that their sincerity isn't enough to feed the crowd, and their faithfulness and their commitment isn't going to get the job done. At that moment, the disciples are faced with the hard reality that they're not the masters of their fate. They're not the captains of their soul. They could wish on a star until the sun comes up, and no matter how many plans they try, the disciples are helpless. And at that moment, they have one option left. Turn the problem over to Jesus. It's the moment that Jesus has been waiting for Think about it, Jesus is good at waiting. Today he waits. He waits for us just as on that day he waited for the disciples. He waits while we come up with our plan A and our plan B and our plan C. He waits as we all too slowly figure out that hoping hard enough and working long enough and wishing upon a star doesn't always make dreams come true. The Lord knows that every single one of us will reach the point in time Each of us will be confronted by that situation when the very best we can do is insufficient. If you're wondering, Pastor, what kind of situation might that be? Let me explain. All of us have committed sins that we can't remove. We're not the people that we ought to be. We adopt all kinds of self-improvement programs, but we remain imperfect people. All of us, we'll someday have to face death. And no matter how well we've lived our lives, all of us have that gnawing feeling which says judgment day is not going to be a pleasant experience. And in those situations, no matter how sincere we are, no matter how committed we are, no matter how hard we try, on our own, we're helpless and lost. And how sad this day would be if this message had to end with those words, on our own, we're helpless and lost. But thank the good Lord, because of Jesus, the sermon doesn't end there. I could actually go on for a long time, but I won't. You see, when you're weak, the Bible tells us Jesus is strong. When you're at your rope's end, you discover that Jesus is holding the other end of that rope, and he's holding you too. When there's nothing more you can do, when your plans have proven ineffective, Jesus is just starting. You see, your Heavenly Father has always known you were helpless. He has always known you didn't have the ability to make yourself perfect or to wipe away your sins or prepare yourself for Judgment Day. 
He knew you couldn't face him alone and successfully avoid the conviction, which most certainly would come, because you're helpless is why he sent his son, to do what you couldn't do. It's why Jesus lived, why he suffered, why he died, why he rose again. If Jesus has done what you could not do, is the comfort to given to those who have faith in the Savior. That day by the Sea of Galilee, when the disciples could think of nothing else to do, they watched what Jesus could do. They watched in awe and amazement as Jesus took the boy's loaves and his fishes, gave thanks for the bounty, multiplied them into this satisfying banquet, which is able to feed thousands of people. It's more than a satisfying banquet. It's overwhelming. And after the thousands are stuffed, they collected baskets filled with leftovers. And not only had the Jesus taken care of the disciples' problem, he knocked it out of the park. And he can and will do the same thing for you. What sin have you committed that just rides you incessantly? Jesus died so that sin would be forgiven. Are you afraid of death? When you pass away, you need not be alone. Jesus has promised to take those who trust him and lead them through the darkness that our ending brings, emerging on the other side in the city of God. This and so much more Jesus can and will do for those who believe. My friends, there is no circumstance so terrible that Jesus will not prove its master. There is no stain of sin so dark that Jesus' blood cannot cleanse. There is no weakness you possess which Jesus' power cannot overcome. The next time you feel that the whole situation is uncertain, the next time you feel a lot of doubt in that difficult time, the next time you get down over your circumstances and think it's hard to believe at times like this, remember this. Jesus is here. Jesus is good news. Jesus will rebuild your faith, even if he has to feed everyone in sight to do it. And if you're not sure about that, then maybe you just need to step back and look around, because Jesus is waiting. And he's brought a little boy with him. And he uses little boys to build our faith. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. Thank you that you give us your word, enabling us to see your son. Enabling us to see our sin. Enabling us to see our savior. Lord, there's one thing we hate to admit, and that's helplessness. We strive and work and fight and demand and scheme. And while we're being so busy, you just wait. Your patience with us is beyond our understanding. We need to see that if we give you so little to work with and yet you return it to us in basket after basket after basket filled to the brim with spiritual food, all to build our faith and get us to rely on you, to believe you, to trust you, to follow you, work on our hearts. 
We need you so much. And remind us again that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Receive the Lord's blessing. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Have a happy Thanksgiving.